welcome to the next edition of Lights in Europe. Today we speak to Vera Pinto Gomes, who's one of the experts working on the EU space program Galileo, but also an activist for patients' healthcare. In this podcast edition, she busts a whole range of myths, uh, such as space industry being open exclusively for male engineers, or chronic diseases being an obstacle to living an energized and fulfilled life without barriers. She even manages to link space exploration and health. So listen to her as a unique example of a woman that is determined to follow her passion to work on one of the most expensive programs in the European history, but also to transform the life of chronically ill individuals in Portugal at the same time. She's sharing what she's done to the Portuguese legislation on healthcare and also what is it that got her a standing ovation the last time she gave a TEDx talk. Hi Vera, you're a dear friend and a role model for many of us. I'm really happy to have you on Lights on Europe to share your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. So let's dive deep first into who you are in your in your real job in the European Commission. You work uh, as one of the team working on the Galileo program, which is one of our space programs. But what's special is that you're very passionate about having made it to the to the job because it was a dream of yours for a long time and I remember once you gave me a fairy tale book for little girls uh, about a story of Valentina Tereshkova who was the first woman in space which is very inspiring and I'm really a big fan of this kind of books for little girls breaking the myths of what our superheroes could look like and that there are also women superheroes that we don't know as much about so what's your story what is it that brought you to space career? Um, I remember since I was a kid, uh, you know, going out with my parents in the evening and sometimes, you know, grown-ups talk and I was starting to look at the sky and see the stars and I even had my favorite ones. Uh, and then over time, you know, my, I pursue other type of interests. I study international relations, and, uh, and, but I always kept uh, some activities related to space. So I was going... I was part of some astronomy, uh, amateur astronomers group, so I was doing night sky, stargazing, and I was, I remember being in some events that I was the only person that was not from sciences, because I was social, social science, and the other, all the others were like engineers, IT guys, kind of thing. And I was there, the one studying international relations and doing stargazing, and very, and very happy about it. And at the time there was, um, a person called Nunu Krat, that later, many years later, I was already here in Brussels, he became the Minister for Science and Technology, that he used to do a lot of science awareness, and he wrote uh, a, um, on the book that I bought, he wrote that to Vera, our future diplomat in Mars. Wow. And, and, and that, I always kept that, you know, and for me it was like, yeah, but why not, I can, I can put you know, maybe work in space and still uh, study international relations and political science. And over the years I realized that it's a man's, a man's world, for sure. Um, I was lucky to never feel a side of it, uh, to meet people that always made me feel integrated. But it is true that you don't have a lot of women in, in space. Even today, I have meetings that I'm the only. Sometimes I'm the only one in the room, or the only woman in the room. Um, so still, this still happens. And the, the book uh, that I offer you 
it tries also to show that it is okay for little girls to look at space and want to build rockets and reach for the stars and why not go to the moon. Um, and I hope that that book inspires a lot of people because it was a project from a friend of mine and that I, I support since day zero. Um, and for Is me, there something special we can do to attract more women into space other than the usual activities that are done to attract more women into science degrees? We need to make clear that uh, there's no... Mm, let me put it this way. When you look at Earth from space, you don't have borders. You don't see borders. That is something that we humans, we created. Okay? And I think it's also the same thing when the fact that we don't have women in, in STEM education or we don't have men in certain areas is also borders, limits, limitations that we created. So and I we think put in the heads of little kids when we show yeah. them which jobs are for girls and which yeah, are for boys. Yeah, when you say that you are a girl, you need to wear pink, you are a boy, you need to wear blue. Why they cannot wear purple or yellow or green, you know? There's why it needs to be... Why we, do we put ourselves in boxes, you know? And my father, I'm an only child, okay? And I'm a girl. And I was born in, in 1980, so, you know, after a regime in Portugal that fell in 74, and my parents and my grandparents were educated under this. And under this regime, the woman place, the woman place was at home taking care of the kids. So if you want to travel, you needed to ask permission to your husband or your parents. Uh, if you wanted even to take drive a license, for example, or you, you know, if you wanted to take a degree, for example, you needed to ask permission. So I was born already after the, the revolution, but there was still a lot of this mentality in the community, in the society. And my father used to take care of me. He used to change, give me the bottle, he put me asleep in the night, to play with me, girls, girls play like with dolls, but also like boy stuff, like going to chase crickets and these type of things. So you saw all these myths being broken since I didn't you were a little girl. I didn't this have them. This created the possibility for you to dream of anything, Exactly, really. I didn't have them. And, but I remember that there was a lot of criticism. Of from, him. Of him, because look, I don't know if I can say this, was like, look at the pussy helping his wife. But he was not helping his wife. They were a team. My parents were always a team, you know? He was taking responsibility of being a father and taking care of a child and showing me that it is okay if I want to chase crickets and make bruises on my knees or if I want to uh, play dolls or it, it's okay. And so for me, I was, I was never... There was never a box. I could do whatever I want as long as I felt okay with it. So I made my choices over a life, sometimes wrong ones, other times right ones, but they were, my parents were always uh, by, beside me. And at a certain moment in time, I decided to do a degree that at the time in Portugal we knew, like, you're going to do this degree, you're going unemployed. But for me it was like, no, but it's what I want and I'm sure I will make it something of it. So I did my degree and then I went to do a master's degree and when I was doing my master's, it was at the time um, that uh, George W. Bush in 84, uh, 2004 uh, announced his space exploration vision. So it was very, already very, 
like, whoa, for the time, because he was speaking about going to Mars already and this type of thing. So Kennedy was all about the moon and Bush was all about Mars. Mars. Yeah, but less inspiring than Kennedy, <laughs> to be honest. But, okay. but I remember seeing that on the canteen at lunchtime on the news, you know, like the footnote about that. And I, on that day, I decided, oh, no, I can combine the degree that I wanted to take because I, I learned so many things like economy, sociology, history. And at the same time, I can bind it with space. You know, you, you need also other people beyond engineers. You need also like politicians to get them the money to build the rockets and send them to space. And so I start saying, I'm going to do my master thesis in space policy. And my friends were like, you're lunatic. <laughs> what, space, what is that space policy? I'm sure it didn't even exist back then. It existed, but uh, like in US, for example, Russia, UK, you had already some think uh, tanks. The European one of the European Commission? Uh, n in, no, 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 no. You had, not yet. You had, uh, in 2004, you had already the decision to build Galileo. There, it was already there because it was in 2001 that was approved. And you had already some work being done. Um, but the majority of countries, they didn't even have that. At the time, there was... Uh, uh, an institute in Paris that was uh, one investigator dedicated to space policy issues. You had a British guy also, and then you had uh, like already like a, a university course in the US. So I hear this a lot from people who are into career coaching, who often say when students can decide which degree to go for, to pick whatever is emerging, not to go for to study the sectors which are already hyped up in the period when you're going to study because by the time you're if done with your study the sector might be over or morphed into something else whereas if you're on the top of the the emerging stuff it might be <laughs> just about big enough once you're done with your yeah. studies and which is and more like what happened expert. to you yeah yeah and so basically what happened to me was that i finished my master thesis uh, i start working on it i start writing a blog about space policy in portuguese because you didn't have materials in portuguese nowhere uh, and then they start uh, raising some interest. And I was lucky to have a teacher at the university when I told him, um, when I met him the first time, I said, I want to do a master thesis about the migration coming from uh, the Maghreb, so North Africa to Europe. And at the time he said, yeah, yeah, there's so much already written about that. And guess what, I was already a visionary. We still haven't had the solution. <laughs> um, and then I came back to him and I said, well, you know what, I had, I had a second thought and I want to do about space policy and how space policy and international politics go hand by hand. I remember he's looking at me and said, that's an awesome idea. And I was like, yeah, I got his support because it was a, a teacher that I really admire very much and I still do. And so I started working on that and, and but at the time, uh, except for my parents that support me anyway. <laughs> I had a lot of friends that were like, you're you crazy, are the weird one, what yeah. are you doing? And like, oh, you're the alien kind of thing. And a few years later, uh, 10 years after, oh, almost 10 years after, I applied for the job here in, uh, in the three jobs actually, I applied to three jobs. I was considered to two and I got one, so not bad. I got the job here. And at the moment when I got the job, you know, everyone was like, Oh, she did it. <laughs> and then, of course, now, and now if you look at Portugal, we recently created uh, the space agency. A space agency. You have a lot of companies that work in this field. 
you have, and after that, I helped a lot of students with master thesis and PhD thesis and space po uh, politics. Yeah, now it's no longer COVID because it's the business as usual. No, no, now it's getting like everywhere, basically. I, I got an email yesterday on my uh, email box saying, what do you recommend on space policy for a student? No, yeah. you know, I get, That's uh, when you know that it's it taken well. care of at the yeah. university. You reached for the skies, you made it, and then you started kind of embarking in the new territory when you became an activist for patients' rights in Portugal, because you yourself are a patient as well. And this is what I find truly fascinating about a woman like you, who's like out there and everybody knows you as a super energetic woman. And we've always been together in all kinds of experimental projects here together, working on how we can reform the institutions and putting in a lot of extra hours and bringing in a lot of innovative ideas and creativity. And then one day we talk and you just drop it just like that. that there's a condition and then you like once in a while you have to, you know, take a couple of days off and be in hospital. And so for me, this is like a fascinating level of society that we know very little about. And I think it's very precious if there are some courageous people like you who are willing to be a bit more vulnerable and speak up and eventually start fighting also for the rights of other people who are in a similar condition. So. Tell us a little bit more about the space that you're in. So I, I suffer from an inflammatory bowel disease. That is a, a group of diseases that basically my, my immune system can for unknown reasons overreact and attack my intestine and provoke severe inflammation. And it has periods that is active and periods that is dormant. Uh, the doctors call it in remission. And when it's in remission, I'm functional like anyone else. When it is active, uh, then come to difficult periods. Uh, and then I develop a number of strategies to cope, you know, like uh, even if I need to take a nap at lunchtime in the office, for example, like I did last time, I got into a crisis, I do it so that I'm able to. I always try to keep myself as functional and as productive as possible. To which degree for you to be operational, the people around you must know about your strategies? Do you think you would be able to go ahead and live with the conditions and cope with it on a daily basis if your colleagues, your boss, wouldn't be as supportive as they are? Because I don't think you can just go and lock yourself in the office and have a nap just like that. At right? lunchtime? It's lunchtime, so I'm supposed to have been at yeah, the some canteen. Some people go for a smoke, you take a nap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think uh, some of my colleagues only realized that I had this uh, disability uh, when I was five months out and I was already in a crisis for more than one year. Wow. That um, takes a lot of, I don't know, of what? Discipline, courage, strategizing around stubbornness it? Stubbornness. Stubbornness. <laughs> and sometimes Warrior denial. attitude. <laughs> yeah. It is. If we, we Sometimes we call ourselves the IBD warriors and, and, it's, and it's true. I'm, I have, um, for me, it's very difficult. Nobody likes to be vulnerable. Nobody likes to admit that it's vulnerable. I had this disease for 12 years and only the last three years I became uh, open about it. And so this is exactly the moment that I wanted to ask you about. Um, what is it that shifted this in you to be willing to go 
public with it and really become even more vulnerable than you are because you already are because you're oftentimes not even feeling comfortable in your body and you have to live with it and work through it somehow and then you decide to go public and like build all this campaign that we will talk about in a while so what is it that was this trigger that shifted the way you were looking at it so in 2015 on uh, on our first very romantic weekend out i got food poisoning and for people with my disease, food poisoning is like the worst nightmare. It's like, it's, 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 it's something that you, is like the vampire running from the sun, okay? Because it means you will get into a crisis, your disease is going to get up active. And unfortunately that happened. And, and it was very, very, very difficult for me physically. I lost a lot of weight, like 10 kilos in two weeks, these type of things, you know, you lose a lot of blood, you get very tired then you need to start on going on medication and then sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't and because your immunitary system is overreacting you start have other stuff so I had things in my skin, I had things in my eyes that's why now I'm wearing glasses for example and not contact lens like I used to um, and, now, and today you have this, today you have that I, I've been in the hospital like with more than two infections at the same time you know because of my immunitary system overreacting and I always push forward to me to be as active as possible. I usually say that the drugs they give to us is very good at the hospital, but in fact, I reached a point that I was not reacting to the medication at all. And so I was admitted to the hospital. Like One day I came to the office and my boss was telling me, you, you really look good today. And at six in the afternoon, I call him and saying, I don't know when I'm coming back to work. I'm, I'm, I need to be admitted in the hospital uh, tomorrow early morning and I'm, I'm not sure when I'm coming back. And when I was at the bed of the hospital, I was thinking that this disease and living with it can, cannot only be bad stuff. You know, I, I was in really, really in a bad moment, in a very bad place. For me, it was the first time in 12 years that I was uh, hospitalized because of the disease. The medication was not working. I was very happy because I was not wearing diapers anymore. You know, everything seemed to go fine. It was a surprise even for the medical team that uh, the intestine was still at risk to be cut. And we were talking about 30 centimeters of the intestine that we were trying to save. And, and for me, it was a huge blow to stop working and, and stop being functional, not being able to leave my house, being stuck at the bed of the hospital. And I needed to make it something good. And so I decided at the bed of the hospital that what I can do, and it's probably one of my major skills to transform bad things in good things, was to give it a purpose. So the fact that I have the disease, it's it can be a purpose. It, can, it doesn't need to be a bad thing. So what I did was like I did with international relations in space, what I did was I pick up my set of skills that I have for my job and for the job that I do uh, at policy level for 20 years and I pick up my disease and I brought them together because I have the skills I have the knowledge about the disease, I know how it is to live with it, the challenges, the discrimination that we have with it. And don't get me wrong, I, if you ask me if I feel more discriminated as a woman in the space sector, or if I feel more discriminated as an uh, invisible disability patient in society, I say with no excitation that I feel more discriminated by having an invisible disability. I had people screaming at me and insulting me just because I went to a, a 
the disab disabled people's uh, bathroom. But if I would not go, I would just do it in my pants. Because people have no clue. And so what is it? People judge you because they don't see it. And because we don't have the reflex of many people walking in our society and being around us with all kinds of conditions that we don't know about. And so you started really speaking up about this, how we have to be much more conscious yeah. about the invisible disabled patients around us and what's the support we need to give to them. So talk to me a little about, uh, about, the, about, about the petition that you put together yeah. in Portugal to improve the rights of patients in yeah. Portugal. So basically what I did was, uh, like I said, I pick up my set of skills at policy level and put it in use of uh, uh, patients. And I became, I start doing some citizen lobbying. I team up with uh, some patients in Portugal and we launched and submitted a petition beginning of last year requesting legal measures um, to improve conditions for chronic disease patients in general and inflammatory bowel diseases in particular. So give us a couple of examples of what should improve. So for example, access to toilets, and we are not speaking to public toilets, we are speaking at the toilets f that, are, that exist at stores, pharmacies, for employees. You know that legally the, the person at the store cannot give you access to that toilet because if something happens, the store will be responsible. So if you go to use that toilet and you slip and you twist your ankle, the store is responsible for that and need to cover all the medical care and costs. And what we are asking is that let us use that toilet and the store is not, not responsible if something happened to us. And what impact this can have? There People with this type of diseases, if they are in a crisis, they do not leave their house. They do not go to the pharmacy to pick up their medication because they don't know if they have a toilet to use. They, lost, they have a lot of weight variations, but they don't go to buy clothes because they, there's no toilet at the store that they can use. And even if you look here at supermarkets in Belgium, you have a lot of supermarkets, the majority of them don't have a toilet for public. So they people don't go. And How many people are we talking about who could be target group of these kind of measures? Uh, if, if we are talking only about inflammatory bowel disease patients, we are talking about around five to six million in Europe. Um, in Belgium and in Portugal, they are more than 20,000. But there's not official statistics. That is also another issue that we are trying to solve because there's no statistics. Uh, but if you think that this is also we, what we asked is that this type of, this specific, there are other measures, but this specific measure is also applicable to any medical condition that requires an urgent and immediate access to a toilet. So you're thinking, for example, cancer in the intestine or in the bladder, uh, men with problems in the prostate, prostate um, or um, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, short intestine syndrome. So there's actually a lot of uh, some, a lot of medical conditions that, in certain moments, can ask this. So we are what we request was that there's a kind of identific official legal binding identification card. Once you have the diagnosis of the doctor, you can request this card. So it's official, so that we prevent uh, some falsifications. Let's put it this way. 
and that the, uh, the commercial uh, spaces are exempt of any responsibility in case something happens when the person is using the toilet. But the measures also goes to better healthcare access, uh, reduce of the financial burden to the families, um, the financial burden that stems from um, medical nutrition, medication, uh, medical exams, uh, medical appointments. Um, and it, these costs can really skyrocket. And there's people that do not follow the treatments as they were supposed to because they don't have the financial capability to do it. And this, of course, makes their, um, their medical scenario get even worse. So they will not go back to work anytime soon. And what we try to explain and what we try to do is that people, any people with a disease, they want to be as normal as possible. So they want to go to work, they want to go to the movies, you know, they want to have a hobby. They so it's in everybody's interest to make their life as easy as possible exactly. so that they can be fully integrated into the yes. society and it live the life they want to have, right? It means happier people, more integrated, contributed citizens, less costs for the healthcare system, more taxes on the finance minister, you know, everyone wins. It's a win-win situation. And so you just had a great success uh, happening in Portugal when on the basis of your petition, the legislative amendments were adopted. And yeah. so now you will see many of your proposals uh, being rolled out in Portugal. Hopefully one day you will have an opportunity to work on this at the European level as well, because there's us as being uh, really passionate people about the European single market. This is also one of the layers of the single market which really don't exist if a person who's a, pa a recognized patient in one country cannot yeah. really have their rights recognized in another member state. Yes, for example. You start having already some movements, like there's already a pilot about prescriptions, uh, medical prescriptions in one country being recognized in others, so that's already a, a first step. But I think we need to go further. You know, like All type of disabilities need to be recognized at European level, for example. If we really want to have the free movement of people, we need to make that the Ensure right. Ensure free movement of patients. Exactly, free movement of patients, free recognition, uh, the recognition of um, uh, disabilities at European level. And when I say this, is that because you have some medical procedures that guarantee you like X percentage of disability, and this grants you some rights at national level. This should also be recognized in other countries, you know, especially when we have now so much migration inside EU among EU citizens. This exists because this then also has, you can also transfer this, for example, for pension rights. Absolutely. So, you know, you have a lot of things that you can do at European level, and I really hope that else on the next commission will be. Uh, and access to medication and innovative medication uh, will be taken care of for the next commission and especially patient rights. Especially because the health commissioner comes from herself as an activist in the health sector uh, for cancer patients. So I think she has also a sensibility that you will issues. bring yeah. for, for the for And so you just gave a TEDx talk on this subject, which everybody is welcome to watch uh, somewhere on YouTube, I guess. It's, it's not yet available, but it will be uh, mid-January. Okay. Uh, because you still need to go to internal procedures of TEDx. Obviously. Yeah. And so what is the main message of your talk? What is it that got you standing ovation there? Uh, there was a very particular moment, the standing ovation. It was not actually for me. It was because I, uh, at a certain moment, I asked the audience to do something, and and 
and those who look at the brave people that stood up and assuming that they have a disability, an invisible disability, was overwhelming. I almost cried on stage, to be honest. I needed all my self-control to not cry because I was really completely unexpected. But it was the recognition of the courage of those people. You know, everyone applauding them in such, uh, with such an energy and, and recognition, it was really overwhelming. And, and my main message from, from the TED and that I wanted to pass uh, at the TED was that diseases do not discriminate or take taboos into account. So why should we take that discriminate or take taboos into account? So it is important to speak about these invisible disabilities so that there's a better understanding of what people with such a condition need to go through. We take for granted a lot of things that once you get this type of disabilities, it can be anything, it can be on the skin, can be in your eyes, can, you know, can literally be anything. But you take a lot of things for granted and a certain moment you are taking out. It's like coming back to space, you know, when you get up of bed every morning, you take for granted that you leave bed and your feet will land on the floor and you will stand up, right? You are taking gravity for granted. But if you go to space, there's no gravity. So it's something that you always had every day in your life. It was like business as usual suddenly stops being business as usual. And with invisible disabilities or any type of disability, this is also the question, is that uh, you take things for granted that I, I, I do not take. Like you take for granted that you always arrive in time for the toilet and for me sometimes that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, I, I cannot take that for granted. It's, it comes to these basic things. Yeah. Like you, you take for granted that you will eat uh, a soup and you will be fine. I don't because I, um, I, if the soup has this or that, I know that it's going to be very wrong for me. And so what's the next thing on your bucket list that you dream of either as a space professional or as a patient activist? Well, I came on Saturday, I decided that I will try to do a stand-up about uh, uh, inflammatory <laughs> bowel diseases. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it or not, but in fact, I only we can speak about... We will hold you accountable? Yeah, the, basically this is uh, something that I learned also from my father, is that uh, even on the worst things, you can always laugh about it. And if you, by laughing, you make them more uh, reachable, you know? And so I was like, ah, why not a stand-up comedy on this? On, on space, uh, I'm very, very curious to see what is going to happen. I'm very proud to be uh, on the future of the youth space programs. There will be made some changes for the next seven years. And being part of that is, it, I'm a very proud EU uh, civil servant and a youth space program uh, um, policymaker. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy of change is coming. And, and I think it will bring a lot of changes also for the real life, you know, like even on else, there's uh, there's even some apps to find toilets, and they use space technology. It's so eventually all coming together. It all comes together, and this is you know like diapers were invented for the Apollo missions, you know. So yeah. if it wouldn't be for space, we would not be having diapers. We would still washing. Uh, so. You know, I, this is the fun, the, the fun part of working in space, is that whatever you do here, even if people are not aware, you are bringing them change 
and they better changes. It's a lot of investment into the geeky stuff, but ultimately it translates into concrete improvements yeah. in our everyday life. So, thank you very much for your inspiration. I think you're really a huge role model for many of us, thank given you. everything that you managed to do. So, good luck. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye.